Amen. My name is Pastor Jeff, and I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. We'll be reading today from Luke chapter 17, verse 7 through 10. Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that has been commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is the Lord's word. You may be seated. Unless you want to stand. I have to stand the whole time. Thank you, Jeff. We're going to be in Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 10. He read one portion of it. One announcement to make. Adam Ingram. Do you know who Adam Ingram is? A lot of times he plays guitar kind of over here. And um, if you don't know Adam, I'm trying to think of ways to describe Adam. Only one comes to mind. Adam's bald. And, uh, and he plays guitar, and he helps out in a lot of areas. Here's what's great about Adam in the ministry of FBC Medford. Adam is candidating for the role of teaching pastor, senior pastor at Ashland First Baptist in, well, in Ashland. Um, and this morning, he's, there's been a process that's been going on over a while. This morning, after the service, they will be voting. You know, so midterm elections, Adam is on the... <laughs> Adam is on the ballot. So it's too late. If you want Adam to not get the job, it's too late for you to become a member at Ashland First Baptist and vote no. Uh, so anyway, we're going to take a moment to pray for Adam and his family as they uh, trust the Lord for what's next. We're grateful that he has a great opportunity to serve the Lord at this sister church in Ashland. If you didn't know, Ashland First Baptist planted Medford First Baptist in 1896. So I see two of you who were here for that event, and uh, thank you for being here for that. Uh, and so it's one of those ways we feel, a, we feel a great connection with that church and have for a very, very long time. So let's take a moment, pray for Adam, and ask for God to do a work as we look at his word. God, we are grateful for the work that you alone are doing through the people of this local body of believers, and we are grateful, God, that you have, uh, by your design, moved in Adam's heart and in the uh, people of Ashland First Baptist for them to take a look at one another. Our prayer, God, is that your will is done and, and that uh, Adam would have the opportunity to serve that church as pastor. We pray you would protect Adam and his family from the enemy who will seek to discourage. We pray for Ashland First Baptist that you will provide by your spirit a great time of renewal, a great time of seeing the gospel find purchase in the hearts of individuals and you would have effective ministry in the city of Ashland along with other uh, power, effective churches there uh, in Ashland. So, God, we pray for your work to be done. We pray, Lord, as we take a minute or two to look at your word this morning, that you would give us hearts that are willing to say your way, not my way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are planning on doing anything, whether it be get some things done for the day, whether it be going to work, whether it be school or planning uh, for a trip or a project, you might make lists. 
you make uh, packing lists. If you go to the store, hopefully you make a, a grocery list. If you don't make a grocery list, what do you buy? All the things, and none of them healthy. Make a grocery list. Maybe you make a to-do list. Some people do not like making to-do lists. What they really like doing is checking things off the to-do list. You know you're that person if after you've done something, you add it to your to-do list so you can check it off. That's, yeah, we got some hands up. Some people just came to Jesus. <laughs> wow, I didn't know so early on, and we're closed. Um, what is a disciple's checklist look like? And that's our passage today. We're going to look at four things, four checklists. It's not comprehensive. We're just going to look at four little things that Jesus talks about. They're four, in, in many ways, some sort of random things. This is a tossed salad of ideas that Luke gives us here in Luke chapter 17. But when we, we look at all four of these areas, at the end of the day, they, they, they sort of come together as things that are important if you want to be a follower of Jesus as a disciple. And the first category of those things is the disciples' checklist, walking with others. Something we have to do as disciples is walk with other disciples. Let me read verses 1 through 4 to get us going. And Jesus said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Disciples' checklist, walking with others. Maybe you've seen this like on a college football game, the, the marching band will go out and do a routine where they make different shapes on the field. And I've seen some pretty spectacular looking marching bands. You can uh, go onto the YouTubes and you'll see some type marching bands. And they do some pretty incredible things. So what happens when you're watching a marching band and they're doing a formation, not everybody does the same thing, right? Everybody's doing something different. However, everybody, whatever they're doing, they're doing in reference to the people around them. So they're keeping an eye on the person to the left and to the right and in front of them and, and behind, behind them. Because what everybody does in reference to one another ends up resulting in what the whole ought to be like. And if any one person decides not to do anything in reference to the people around them, where is everybody in the stadium going to look at? What is the tuba player doing? Why, why is he over there? Everybody's going to immediately go, in, this guy's off, and, and, the, and the whole thing will be ruined. To be a follower of Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus means we recognize that we're all in this together, that we're not on our own, there's no Lone Ranger Jesus followers. How we live in relationship with Jesus is not only about ourselves, but about how we live with others in relationship with Jesus. And that's critically important. If you're going to be a disciple, checklist number one, you are doing that with others. Now, if you happen to be marooned on a desert island and there's no one else there, okay, you're the one person maybe. But then as soon as somebody finds you, you're back in business. You're doing Jesus you're, you're engaging in relationship with Jesus with others. So the first thing you need to recognize, if we're going to walk with Jesus, 
with others, and this is really, really basic. Are you ready? I don't even know if you have to write this down. Don't make others sin. Is that complicated? Do I need to develop this idea? Don't make others sin. Look what it says. Temptations to sin are sure to come. What are the odds you're going to be tempted today? 100%. Well, what if I lock myself in a closet, close my eyes, tie my hands behind my back, put a thing over my mouth? You, you fix nothing. You're still stuck with your heart. You're still stuck with you. And so temptation is going to come. I would suggest temptation will come before the end of this, this message. And, and since temptation is going to come, what Jesus says about us walking together, we all know it's going to, that there's temptation on the horizon. Let's not bring that temptation to one another. Let's not be the ones that lead one another to sin. What is he, he, what is he getting at here? He says, look how serious Jesus takes it in verse 2. It'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. That sounds terrible. What's a millstone? There's two millstones on a stone mill. There's the lower millstone. He's not talking about the lower millstone. The lower millstone would weigh as much as a Buick. How much does a Buick weigh? As much as a lower millstone. The upper millstone is generally smaller. If you were a miller, you would take your upper millstone home with you because you wouldn't want it stolen. It was very valuable. Nonetheless, it's not something you would wear while swimming. There would be no way you could stay afloat. This is just simply saying it would, better to, it would be better to die than to lead a brother or sister into sin. What Jesus is not saying is if you leave a, lead a brother or sister into sin, you will have a millstone hung around your neck and you will be cast into the ocean. Okay, that's, he is simply trying to communicate to us this is a serious deal, isn't it? How many of you have led a brother or sister into sin? I'm asking. All of you. Come on, think about it. If you're married, you've done it. You've led each other into sin. If you have children, you've done it. If you are a child, you've done it. If you have in-laws, we're done. Okay, we're, we're done here, right? So what do we say? Well, gee, I've got I've to go into panic mode, not leading anybody else into sin. Stop it. We're trying to recognize how serious Jesus takes it. That's what we're trying to understand. He's saying, listen, this is a big deal. We are walking with the Lord. Do you want to sin? No. Well, also, I don't want the people around me to sin. What are some ways that we can lead each other to sin in general categories? Number one, doing or saying that something that is a sin is not a sin. So if there is something that is wrong, and I try to convince somebody else it is not wrong, then I'm leading them into sin. That's what I'm doing. Well, this isn't such a big deal. Everybody does this. So if I try to convince somebody that something is not wrong or, or something that is a sin is not a sin, uh, that, that's a problem. Also, if we do something we know is wrong, but we want other people to join us so we feel less bad about it, that is a sin. I'll give you the most popular one in churches. Gossip. There is somebody you think, not me, there is somebody you think in this church, well, they're not a good person. Do you know what? I feel bad that I think so-and-so, I won't say their name, I feel bad that I think so-and-so 
is a bad person. And have you ever felt this way about somebody? Don't look at them. I feel kind of bad about it. But you know what would make me feel better? If somebody else also felt the same way. Now, we wouldn't say it in those words. That would be ridiculous. So merely what we do is when we see someone at home group or maybe at Bible study or maybe in the fireside room for donut time, maybe we share a prayer request about so-and-so. You know, we really ought to be praying for so-and-so because they don't have a heart for the Lord. And let me explain to you in details the way that they don't measure up. So I've just drawn somebody into gossip. Or maybe you don't even do it with the whole prayer request situation. You just say, i gotta, I got to get this off my chest. And then you tear somebody down. What's the definition of gossip? Talking about somebody else negatively when they're not standing with you. That's what gossip is. So this is leading each other into sin. Because now that person you have shared this salacious, salacious information with, they have to make a decision right there. Am I going to continue in this conversation and jump into the sin pool with you, or am I going to disengage? Look at that. You've just put that person in a position that Jesus is describing here. Because if somebody comes up to you and gossips, what's, what are you su- supposed to do? There's a couple of things you can do. I'm giving you full permission, not that you need my permission for anything. Number one, you could tell them, you're a gossip. That's true. I have no problem with that. What if they get offended? They just tried to make you sin, and you're worried about offending them. What's the other thing that's more fun if you're looking for entertainment value? Hey, there he is right over there. Why don't we go get him? Now, that, that's a fun one. They said, well, we need to, oh, there's, there's so-and-so over there, and you know, they're really struggling in this area, and you're like, oh, my goodness, let's go pray for them in that particular area right now. That will shut that down, right? Well, no, 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 I think they might be offended. So that's, that's the way you do it. They say, well, I don't want to cause trouble. Gossips destroy churches. Cause trouble. I got no problem. Are we clear? Okay, I don't know how we got on to gossip. (laughs) How do you make others sin? Doing or saying that sin is not a sin or trying to get people to jump into your sin pool with you because you feel bad about your sin. Jesus says, you are concerned about your spiritual life because you say, you know what, I want my life to be characterized by holiness The disciples' checklist, one of the things we should check on our checklist is this. I want to be as concerned about my brothers and sisters' holiness as I am about mine. And I don't want to do anything that might lead them into sinning against our Lord. And I look at how Jesus describes it. He is saying this is something he takes real serious. This is something that's really important to him. And we want to have it be just as important to us that we leave, lead one another into holiness and righteousness. Look at verse 3, right at the beginning. Pay attention to yourselves. So he, he gives us this great warning. Don't lead each other into temptation and sin because temptation is going to come. You don't need to help each other with that. And then he says, listen, it's, it's so serious. It would be better be thrown into the ocean with a, with a weight around, around your neck than to lead someone into sin. And then he adds this to it. Pay attention to yourselves. Look closely at what you're doing. Make make it a point of focus of your life. Are there things in my life? I want my life when engaging in relationship with others to lead others towards holiness and righteousness and closeness with Christ, not to draw them away. Let's make sure we're helping one another, not hindering one another. I want to read just briefly Romans 14, uh, 1 through 4. 
and then I want to give some clarity on it. There are some things in, in life that are kind of, well, gray area. Well, gray area is not the word. Things we do differently that the Bible is not specific about. Here's what it says. Romans 14, 1 through 4. It will not be on the screen. You're going to have to look up in your own Bible. Because this was a game day ad. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. That is not a good thing to read in Southern Oregon. Listen, <laughs> especially during hunting season. You know, it's talking about something different. We're not talking about vegetarian. We're talking about religious meals. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So in that day, there was kind of a quarrel over where you could eat related to religious expression. To summarize a lot of different complicated things that were going on, you could buy really good, really inexpensive meat both at the market and at pagan temples that had been used in the worship of pagan deities. And it was high-quality meat because some pagan worshiper gave it to their god. You don't give cheap meat to your god, you won't have good luck. So it was really good meat. It was offered at a really inexpensive price. And the Bible makes it clear, both the Apostle Paul here in Romans and over in his letter to the Corinthians, that do you know what happens to meat when you offer it to pagan gods? Nothing. Still meat. Still delicious. You and eat away, have the meat. He said, however, however, if you have somebody who's with you where that's kind of hard for them spiritually, like, I don't know, was that a pagan temple? I don't, know, I don't know if we should eat it. Then he sort of says, well, you should watch out for your brother in the Lord. You, you should, if there's something you're doing, the Bible is not clear about. In this case, the kind of meats that you consume. If your brother struggles with that because he is weak in his faith, by definition, if you have trouble eating meat, you are weak in your faith. Didn't come out right. This is not a good day. As it pertains to religious uh, observation, he's saying you're weak because the Bible, the, God says anything eaten with thanks should be enjoyed. Now, if I am a strong believer and I know I can eat any meat with thanksgiving and it, it doesn't, and I'm sitting with my weak brother and he's struggling, wow, that guy's eating that pagan steak, then what I should do as a mature brother in the Lord who wants to glorify God, I should walk not merely in reference to my desires, but also in reference to the people around me. And maybe while I'm eating with this guy, I'm not going to eat that steak. Not because I shouldn't, not because I don't have to, not because it's naughty, but because I love this guy. Because I, because I care about him. And I want to do whatever I can to see him grow. Now, can I add my asterisk to this? Number one, if you've been weak in an area in four, for 40 years, we got a problem. Okay, so if, if there's something Christians shouldn't do, and I've believed it for 40 years and the Bible doesn't teach it, You've got a problem. You should only be weak for a time, shouldn't you? Secondly, there's a difference between a weak brother and sister and a legalist. A legalist says you have to act a particular way to make God happy with you. And I always say this because I don't want you to misunderstand. I want to be totally clear so that we, we, should, we should seek diligently not to offend weak brothers and sisters in the Lord who struggle in areas of liberty that are perfectly okay. 
However, we should work just as hard diligently to offend the legalists in our life. I'm dead serious. Legalism keeps people from the gospel. Telling people they have to earn their way to Jesus says you don't need Jesus. I have no problem if somebody is offended because they want to tell you that you have to earn God's favor through good behavior. You can't earn God's favor through good behavior. So if you're worried about offending your local legalist, don't worry about it because there's no way, honestly, not to. However, your brother and sister in the Lord who's trying to figure out what it looks like for them to walk with Jesus, let's extend our heart to them in love and care. And that's what the Bible is telling us. We're walking with others. Boy, doesn't this require a lot of wisdom, a lot of understanding? It means we can't just set up a, a list of rules. Here's what good people do and good people don't do. We have to engage in our walk with Christ while looking at others, looking at our Bible, seeking the Lord in prayer. It requires a lot of wisdom. That's why Jesus says in verse 3, what's he say? Pay attention. Pay attention. Look diligently. Just like a person in a marching band, you're always checking. You're always working. You're always thinking about not only your own heart, but the people around you. This is one of the ways we show great love to one another. Disciples checklist, walking with others, first thing, don't make each other sin. That's pretty simple. I don't know why it took so long for me to say that. Look at the second part of verse 3 and verse 4. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. So the first thing, don't make each other sin. Second thing, help each other overcome sin. If your brother sins and you see him sinning, what should you do? telling me sinning. First of all, he may not know. First of all, he may not know. How many times have you had a, a wise, mature brother or sister in the Lord come to you and say, when, you know, when you said that or you did that, really hurt me. I don't know if you meant that, but that's what you said. Boy, and sometimes when you're, re, you're rebuked like that, you, if you're, you're honest, you're, Boy, I didn't even think of it that way. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you told me. Because I, I didn't realize my words were as hurtful as they, they were. I, I thought I was just being funny. I thought we were just kidding around. I you're right, I need to be careful how I speak. And so one thing we want to do is, if, if we see one another sinning, we need to go up to each other and say, well, you know what, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I see this in your life, I'm trying to figure out how that fits with your relationship with Jesus. Does anybody enjoy doing that? I hope not. Should we? Yeah, because we need it. One, one author said it this way, most of us who are blind are blind to our own blindness, which means... Not only do we realize we can't see, we don't realize we can't see. And that's why we need one another every now and then to come up to each other and say, you know what, here's, what's, I, here's what I see in your life, and I just want to be honest and, and leave it between you and the Lord. And there's, that's a good thing. That's what rebuke means. It doesn't mean you have to come up and smack them upside the head. But sometimes somebody doesn't see it. The goal here is not to tear somebody down. The goal here isn't to let someone know they don't measure up to you. The goal here isn't... Uh, to get revenge because of, of something somebody has done to you. The goal here is to provide somebody information so they can turn to the Lord in repentance. Say, here's what I see in your life. Here's how I see you interacting with others in the church. Hey, I saw this going on with you when we were at work today, and I thought we were brothers in the Lord, and I was surprised that went down that way. Is everything okay? And that's a, that's a rebuke. If he repents, forgive him. That's the goal there. The goal is for the brother or sister in the Lord to say, Oh, man, you're, you're totally right. 
I was, I, was, I was out of my depth there. I was, I was completely in the flesh. I, I was totally in rebellion. I, I really appreciate you coming to me and sharing that with me. And what we ought to do then, if somebody uh, is, is drawn into repentance through rebuke, is we forgive them. Say, you got it. You got it. Because that's what we do, is we help each other overcome sin by, by being one another's eyes and ears when we don't see things properly. And then when we uh, have our heart, heart turned to the Lord in conviction and repentance, we're the first ones as a body of believers to offer forgiveness and grace and kindness. Say, listen, we're all in this together. Forgiveness with an eye towards helping someone who wants to be overcome. In fact, this is one of the fundamental ways we can be like Jesus. When Jesus came, first of all, he sent John the Baptist first. And what did John the Baptist tell everybody? Repent. The Lord is coming. He made the way for the Lord by telling everybody there were sinners. So that when Jesus showed up, the solution to their problem was there. And then when Jesus showed up, what did he do? He offered the solution to those who wanted forgiveness for their sins. We help others overcome their sin by, number one, when we see something, we have a conversation with them in love and grace. Galatians makes it clear we should be careful when we do that. Galatians tells us, be careful when you go to draw your brother out of sin, otherwise you might also be drawn into sin. So this is something we do with humility and grace and kindness. And then when somebody responds to the Lord, we offer that grace and forgiveness, even when that sin has been done against us. Then he gets crazy. Verse 4, if someone sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Anybody here after like three times say, I don't buy it? Like at a certain point, you say, you're not repenting. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about someone here who's in the struggle. He's making, a, he, he's making an illustration, an example. Say, somebody is struggling to overcome sin. You've, you've, you've confronted them about their sin, and they agree with you, and, but they're struggling with it. It's not easy. It, repentance here is heartfelt, and it's genuine, but... But that behavior is something that hangs on. And Jesus is saying, as a body of believers, when do we stop offering people the opportunity to overcome their sin? Never. That's what he means by seven times. He's saying if somebody is in the fight, we are always going to be those to extend grace to one another. Do you think Jesus does that for you? Let me ask you this. Do you have to go to Jesus uh, for forgiveness more than seven times a day? If you're not, you should. Let me just put it that way. So Jesus is simply asking you to have a relationship with others that's similar to the one you have with him. He offers forgiveness and grace to you when you, you, you get upset and frustrated and, and they say, Lord, i got to calm down and simmer down. And then, oh, and then 20 minutes later, that Yahoo does it again. And you get upset. And, oh, Lord, I promised I wouldn't do it, but I did. I got fired up and I, I popped off. I said something I shouldn't. And how many times does Jesus extend grace to you? The Bible says his grace is sufficient. And all Jesus is asking you to do is, do you have enough grace from me for your sin? Yes. So have enough grace for your brothers and sisters for their sin. Helping others overcome sin, repentance is key. And we must have a heartfelt desire to overcome sin, but it is very difficult to do so. Let me add one little asterisk on this one. We aren't doormats. You don't have to be a doormat. Okay? It is perfectly acceptable, not even acceptable, maybe I should say, it is expected 
that you maintain and understand healthy relational boundaries. One author has put it this way in regard to sin. There's two ways, or sin and forgiveness. There's two ways of understanding forgiveness. One element of forgiveness is a heart of forgiveness that says, I am not going to hold against you what you have done because Jesus doesn't hold against me what I have done. However, I am not going to entrust myself to you. Has, did Jesus say that? This is how he described the crowds. He understood what was in the heart of man, and so therefore he didn't entrust himself to them. So all that is saying is, you know what? It's not my job to be judge. It's not my job to be jury. It is my job by God's grace to extend to you forgiveness. That does not mean we have to be best buddies. It doesn't mean that if you're in the room, I have to stay in the room. It doesn't mean we have to communicate on a daily basis. I can forgive you and also recognize that I don't have to entrust myself to you. Now, by God's grace, our hope would be is that reconciliation can, can occur within forgiveness. But that is not always the case, is it? No, it's not always the case. It's not always the case even in the Bible. The Apostle Paul and Barnabas came into such a sharp dispute that Paul went one way and Barnabas went the other way. And because they couldn't get along, they quit doing ministry and following Jesus. No. They realized it's broken people following Jesus in a broken world and some things don't work out real good and it's messy. Our hope would be that at some point through grace and forgiveness and repentance in our hearts, we can be re reconciled. But I don't want you as a believer to say, well, you know, Jesus forgave others, so I got to put up with this yahoo. Extend forgiveness. You're not the judge. Here, maybe this will help. You've got two options. You can get revenge by holding a grudge, which only gets revenge on you, but let's not go there. Or you can let God get revenge. Who's better at it? He is. So if there's somebody that has hurt you, and it's deep, and all of us, if we've been alive more than 20 minutes, have that. Lord, I forgive them, but you see, God. God, you see what has happened here. I'm asking you, God, to properly account for the rights and wrongs done here according to your grace and purpose. We see this all throughout the Psalms, where the psalmist says, Lord, you see what's going on, you be the judge. And that's a, that's a way of trusting God with your hurts and allowing him to be in charge of it. If that person seeks reconciliation and grace through God, good for them. If they don't, then you have given the person the right job who is judge and jury. Help others overcome their sin. Offer forgiveness early and often. Disciples checklist. Number one, we're walking with others. Let's not make each other sin, and let's help each other overcome sin. Good? Why'd that take so long? Second checklist, verses 5 through 10, disciples checklist. We don't walk only with others, but obviously we walk with Jesus. Another example of people working together, but a little bit different one. In military aviation, there are demonstration teams. You have the Thunderbirds and you have the Blue Angels. Okay, if uh, Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels or these aviation demonstration teams are flying in formation, and you know this, we've talked about this before, there's a lead plane and then there's the, the planes falling into formation behind them. The pilots who are in formation behind the lead plane, they have a really, really simple job. They look at the lead plane. 
They never look anywhere else. They don't look at the horizon. They don't look at their instruments. They look at the plane. All of their actions are going to be in reference to what that lead plane is doing. If the lead plane flies into the ground, the entire formation will because they're all watching the lead plane. That's their point of reference. That's all they're doing. And this is what Jesus is describing for the disciple. The disciple walks with Jesus, and our point of reference for where we're going and how we're doing this is watching our lead plane, watching Jesus, where he is going, what he is doing. He is the one who is determining where things are going. It's complicated because we're doing this while walking with one another. We're doing this with each other. We're looking at each other, and then primarily we're looking at Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus means we keep at the forefront of our minds who the leader is and who the follower is. And to follow is to trust and obey. To follow Jesus means we keep at the forefront of our mind who the leader is and who the follower is. We'll start real easy. Who's the leader? It's church, right answer is always Jesus. Softball. Jesus is the leader. Everybody else is the follower. Look at verses 5, 6, and 7. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord said, basically, wrong question. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. First thing, there's no reason to have to throw trees into the ocean. It's not what he's getting at. He is not concerned about landscaping. What he is saying here is the issue is not how much faith you have. The issue is who you are trusting. The object of our faith is the issue, not how much of it we have. Trust Jesus is what he's saying. If you will trust me, and trust here is the, an, uh, the concept of dependence and rest. First of all, we trust Jesus for salvation and forgiveness, but it also means we trust Jesus to have effective, an effective life for him this side of heaven. The error is to think that trusting Jesus has to do with how much faith we have. The issue is, do we trust the right object of our faith? And this is what Jesus is getting at. If you trusted me to work in you the way the, the Father is working through Jesus, then you could say to a mulberry tree, jump into a river, jump into the ocean. Now, the thing is, we have to understand, Jesus is not trying to tell them how to do cool party tricks, where if you have enough faith when you're at a party, you can rearrange somebody's trees in their front yard. And this is what he is getting at. What he wants them to understand is, if you trust me, anything is possible. There is power to live the life of Christ if we will depend on him. The smallest obedient faith can generate the most powerfully effective works of God. Here's something we have to understand about faith. Faith is dependence, and I don't know how to say this. Well, it's terrible. I guess it's my job to know how to say this, but I don't. It really doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. It, it doesn't have anything to do with how you feel. It has to do with who you trust. And what we want to do is have sort of this faith wherein we have such, um, uh, where we, we never question, uh, we never doubt. Faith is something that is expressed through action. 
There's an old Calvin and Hobbes comment strip, one of my favorites. They're driving over this bridge, and Calvin says to his dad, Dad, how do they know what the weight limit is on this bridge? Have you seen this comic strip? His dad answers, as any dad should, they build a bridge, and they drive heavier and heavier trucks over it until it collapses. <laughs> then they, they weigh the last truck, and that's the weight limit. They rebuild the bridge. And Calvin goes, oh, okay. Oh, that makes perfect sense. Well, every, anytime you've done anything like this, you've trusted. As you've driven across a bridge, weight limit this. We're good. And you, how did you know? How did, how did you know that that bridge wasn't going to fall out from under you? Well, you trusted that sign. Did you feel good about the sign? Did you have a warm, fuzzy feeling in the depths of your soul because you read that sign? No, you just did it. Because, and this is what trust is. Trust is, who do I count on for the things in my life? Who do I count on? And Jesus is saying, if you will count on me in the most uh, infinitesimal, in the most minuscule way, instead of all the other things you could trust, God is going to work in your life in powerful ways that you couldn't imagine. So then he tells this story to illustrate it. Jeff read this story. A servant is out in the field plowing or keeping sheep or doing some such thing as servants would do, and he comes in. And it's time for the, the master to have his supper. And the, the master will not have the servant sit down. The master, as you would expect, would say, prepare supper with me. Make sure you dress correctly, which means what? Take off the clothes you are wearing while you are mucking out the stalls. When you're serving my food, put on some clothes. After I have eaten and drank, then the servant would be the one to take care of his own needs. The thing is, you and I read this story today in our modern world, and we might be a little bit offended by this. Well, who would treat a servant in such a way? And maybe there's an appropriate way to, to think about that. However, in Jesus' day, nobody would find this story interesting at all. You just described Tuesday for the entire planet. And that's Jesus' point. No one, would, no one would find it shocking that a servant would, would be expected to come in and do servity kinds of things. Nobody, in fact, if the servant came in and the master said, don't eat, don't serve me, I'm going to take care of my own meal. In fact, why don't you go out and go to a movie tonight? Everybody would find that shocking. Jesus is telling you this parable so that we can understand what does it look like for faith to be expressed. And he's telling us this. You know you trust Jesus when you serve the master. And who's the master? Jesus. And you say, well, I, I wanted faith to be shown by mulberry trees being thrown into the ocean. That sounds interesting. And Jesus said, no, no, no. If you trust me, your heart will be moved by grace to serve me. Doing so does not obligate God to us. Look, look at verse 10. So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy to be servants. We have only done what was our duty. That seems kind of harsh. But let me check on something. We can do this real quickly and real easily. Have you ever had something bad happen to you? Of course you have. You're in church on Sunday. Not that this is bad. But we come to the Lord. We want answers. Lord, what's going on? So something bad happens to you. Maybe you've prayed this prayer. And I hope you have. I've prayed it a million times. I'll probably pray it later today. This, ha this is happening over here. Whatever bad thing you don't like and you think God messed up on, 
and you pray a prayer something like this. But Lord, I did this. This week I didn't cuss out my neighbor. This week I, I helped my a co-worker and I didn't need to. And this week I volunteered at the Harvest Festival. And, and this week I, I was generous towards this person. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Something bad happens and then you go to the Lord with your list of righteous deeds that you think should have prevented God from doing anything in your life that you might perceive as negative. And that's what he's getting at here. What are you talking about? You can't obligate God with your good deeds. And is that really why you want to do good deeds? Is just to get God on your team? If you're going to try and get God on your team through your good deeds, that is not going to be a good deal for you. Your good deeds aren't very good. What you want to do is have somebody else do good deeds for you which is what Jesus did. So God already shows his favor towards you because perfect Jesus did all the good he needs to do. You can't buy off God with your good deeds. Here's another way of thinking about it. If you could buy off God with your good deeds, how cheap is God? If your good deeds could get God to do your bidding, he is not a God worth worshiping. Does that make sense? His price is too low. His, who would serve a guy who can be bought off so easily with our paltry good deeds? This is what Jesus is saying. We have to understand the nature of the relationship. We're disciples following our Savior, and in walking with Jesus, we need to recognize, although he is kind and gracious and generous and preparing a place for us, and while he looks out for our interests even more than we do, and, and while everything he does is always the best thing for us, the relationship still is defined as master and servant. And that's what he's getting at here. Don't forget the, the definition of the relationship. We're walking with others. Let's not make each other sin and let's call each other out of sin when we get trapped in it. And we're walking with Jesus. Let's keep at the forefront of our minds who the, who the leader is and who the servant is. A couple of things, we'll wrap up with this. Your life with Jesus is not in isolation from others, it is with others. If your relationship with Jesus isn't with others, even your absence can have an effect on those others. My question is this, and I have a couple more questions on it. What are the ways your walk with Jesus isn't helping others? Maybe there are things you're doing that are actually holding others back. Or maybe there are things you are absent from that would be a great encouragement to the brothers and sisters in your life. Let me give you one example. And this is just my job, to be annoying. Here we go. Question, do you love the Word of God? Well, I thought that would be the easy one. That was just to get started. Of course you do. Here's the, here's the thing. This is going to annoy you. Um, when I think of things that annoy me, it's my duty to annoy you with them. When was the last time something you read in the Bible came up with con in conversation with somebody else? I'm not talking about at church or in your 9 o'clock class or at your home group where you're doing a Bible study. I'm talking about just hanging out with somebody where something you read just comes up in casual conversation. Other stuff does. Football comes up in casual conversation. Your kids comes up in casual conversation. 
I bet the election comes up in a casual conversation. These are things we're interested in. These are things that motivate us. These are things that compel us. Is the Bible none of these things? When was the last time in casual conversation, you, just, you know, I read this passage. I don't know what it means. It's bothering me. Or I read this passage, it just changed my day. I thought I would share it with you. He said, well, I don't want to seem like a goody two-shoes. You won't. And if they think you're a goody two-shoes, the problem is not with you. It's with them. They don't want to hear somebody talk about the Bible? What's their deal? Go gossip about them. I'm kidding. That's, that's terrible. Do it. If, if, if you've read a passage and it pops into your mind, it just might be the Holy Spirit wanting you to share something with somebody else. Second thing about faith. I want to develop this just a little bit more. Faith is trust that depends on or counts on someone or something. It's not primarily a feeling, although it can affect our feelings. If we count on something really, really good, it can make us have a sense of well-being. But faith is not primarily an emotion. How do you know what you trust? It's made clear by how you make decisions. Who or what you trust is made clear by how you make decisions. Look at your choices. It will demonstrate what you trust or who you trust. If you are hungry, what do you do? You eat. Why? You believe, faith, that by eating, your hunger will be satisfied. It's not complicated. Is it? No. That's what's hilarious. First of all, you know you will be hungry again, so it didn't work. Secondly, has anybody ever overate? Why? Because we never felt satisfied, so we kept eating. So we trust that food will provide satisfaction, so we eat seeking to no longer be hungry. And you say, well, well what do you mean by that? So it's just all I'm saying. I'm t- Keep eating, please. It's something you ought to do. But what it reveals is what we trust. How we seek to satisfy our appetites, hunger for food, relationships, success, significance, all, of the, how, all the appetites we yearn for, how we seek to satisfy our appetites, also how we seek to, to medicate or soothe our pains reveals who or what we trust. It's, it's quite, this is when, when James talks about faith, faith without deeds is dead. That's all he's saying is what we do, how we make decisions, how we seek to satisfy our appetites and how we seek to soothe our pains demonstrates who or what we trust. Here's the only way I would like you to think about it. In your appetites and in your pains, is Jesus an area where you're seeking satisfaction and comfort Or is he merely an afterthought to other means to satisfy? That's what Jesus is getting at. Who do we trust? Are we going to trust everything else that the world offers? Or are we going to trust him alone? Finally, this. Why serve Jesus with obedience to him and love for others? Why would we serve Jesus with obedience and love others? And this is the last thing. I promise to be done. And if I keep going, then you can confront me on my sin of lying. We should serve Jesus because we have an affection for Jesus. We should serve Jesus because he rewards those who follow him. We should serve Jesus because it's the right thing to do. 
we should serve Jesus because doing so we avoid a lot of negative consequences. Are these all good things? Last thing that we don't like because we're Americans and we're in charge of our life. Listen, we should also serve Jesus because he's God and he's in charge. That's it. He's not asking for advice. He's not asking for your input. He's not asking how your life is going in that way. So sometimes we don't want to serve Jesus. We don't feel love. Sometimes we, we don't, aren't excited about the reward because it's too far away. And, 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 and sometimes we don't care what the right thing to do is. Sometimes in the Christian life, it's okay to serve Jesus just because he's God. And that's what he's getting at in this little parable here. He is God. He assumes that those who worship him will want to serve him and obey him. Disciples checklist. Number one, walking with others. Let's not make each other sin. Let's help each other out of sin. Secondly, walking with Jesus. He is God. Let's trust him and obey him. God, we thank you for this morning and the kindness you have shown us in Jesus. We thank you for your willingness by your grace to share with us your word. God, our prayer would be that you would give us a heart to love and worship you. Our prayer would be, God, that you would move in our hearts to seek to forgive and extend forgiveness and, and look at those ways in which we get in the way of others knowing you well. God, we pray that you would give us unity that demonstrates how much you love us and how much we care for one another. Father, we also pray that you would give us faith. The smallest of seeds of faith where we recognize you are God, we are not, and you are worthy of our worship. We are grateful, God, that you are coming soon, and until that day, God, we pray that you would give us steadfastness to endure to the end and to accomplish your purpose in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand up as we close with a song? Mm -hmm.